Welcome to my podcast, Deep in the Sea. I am Mirko Giordani and I will accompany you on a fantastic journey over Southeast Asia and India. I will interview top politicians, businessmen, analysts and professors from the region. And if you want to understand one of the most dynamic countries in the world, you can listen to this podcast on my website, deepinthesea.org, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, and other famous podcasting platforms such as TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc., etc. And if you want to follow my daily content, you can find me on LinkedIn as Mirko Giordani and the same on Facebook and Twitter. Here we are again at Deep in the Sea, the only podcast that deals entirely with Southeast Asia and India. And I am really grateful to have back a friend of this podcast, which is Mo Tuzer, which is a fellow at ICAs, which is the Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore, where she is the co-coordinator of the Myanmar Studies program. How are you, Mo? Hello, Mirko. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm okay. I'm doing okay, although I'm uh, quite worried about what is happening back in my home country. Yeah, like, and this is the the reason why you are a guest in Deep in the Sea, and I believe that you have been a guest in other uh, podcasts and news uh, these days. Yes, thank been... you for having me back. <laughs> It has been quite hectic uh, um, in Myanmar. You know, usually here in the West news from Southeast Asia does don't arrive in the mainstream media. So usually they arrive through, for example, this podcast. I am, I am trying to make Westerns understand more your region. That's why I have interviewed in the past you and other experts from Southeast Asia and India. But this time, the news of the coup d'etat in Myanmar and the, and the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi, which, is, which has been one of the most famous uh, Um, um, democracy activist in the world, it has arrived and it has arrived in the newsreels at prime time here in Italy, in Europe and in the West. So it's, uh, it's a very important issue. So we, we must have a look on it because now Southeast Asia and Myanmar has become mainstream even here in the West. So the, the question that I want to ask you and after I would let you speak freely because you, you come from Myanmar but you are working in Singapore and uh, I believe that you are the best person to deal with this issue. So how did, you, how did we arrive to this situation? Like how it happened that Aung San Suu Kyi passed from being uh, one of the most important democracy icon to being uh, arrested during a coup d'etat and being ousted by the military in, in Myanmar. You think that this is linked with the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi has been perceived by peace activists in these years as uh, not acting too much, not tackling too much the questions of the Rohingya Muslim minority in Myanmar, first of all. And second of all, I want to understand from you what will be the future outlook of, uh, of your country after this coup d'etat. Thank you, Mirko. It is a serious situation that we are discussing this evening. 
and of course uh, i am quite concerned about uh, what is the how the the, the events will uh, unfold in uh, in myanmar after the military imposed a state of emergency uh, yesterday and uh, effectively took control of the executive powers you wanted to know how myanmar has uh, arrived to this crisis i think to really get to an understanding of that we would need to go to a few decades back, perhaps to 1988, uh, which was when the State Law and Order Restoration Council, military junta, took over power in a bloody coup uh, in September 1988 to suppress the democracy protests that were occurring nationwide. And uh, of course, the face of those democracy protests, the rallying force of those democracy protests, which had started from university students and grown into a kind of a force for democracy that the National League for Democracy was representing and uh, leading. And the face of it all, of course, was uh, Do Aung San Suu Kyi. So it has been this kind of a a kind of a position where on the one hand, you have the military junta in the seat of executive power. And on the other hand, you have the National League for Democracy with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi at, at Tri and the NLD relations have uh, have been maybe framed or shaped since then, since 1988, uh, in, in these two kinds of positions where the dynamics have been more of a tension rather than trying to uh, find, say, a common ground or a compromise to work towards uh, a shared objective. So even though the military's uh, stated objective was to ensure law and order and then convene multi-party elections and transfer power uh, to the party that uh, won those elections, uh, what happened in reality in 1990, of course, was that uh, the NLD won an overwhelming majority but then uh, the election results were nullified and uh, the military qualified this as you have to go through a constitutional uh, drafting process first before uh, the transfer of power can be effected. So there is also this notion of some kind of broken promise that is there in the mindset of, say, the democracy movement of the NLD and, of course, of what uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had to undergo in terms of uh, being placed under several years of house arrest and uh, the NLD as a political uh, party or an entity being uh, scrutinized and harassed uh, through all the years of the military junta's rule over 1980 to uh, right up to 2010. And so when in 2010, the, the, the military tried to orchestrate a transition uh, towards a more civilianized uh, rule with the 2010 elections, when the NLD boycotted those elections, the military also tried to uh, declare that because they did not participate in this process, uh, they are an illegal organization and should be disbanded. But nevertheless, uh, when the, the military-backed quasi-civilian Union Solidarity Development Party, USDP, uh, took power and assumed office from 2011 to 2015, the head of uh, that uh, USDP administration, President Thane Sein, actually tried to facilitate the re-entry of the NLD into the political process. And that is how uh, the NLD uh, became the, the legitimate main opposition party in Myanmar during this 2011-2015 uh, administration of the USDP and entered parliament through by-elections. So uh, that, that, that basically, I think, uh, brings us to uh, the kind of uh, relations uh, that were there in terms of uh, the NLD now uh, being that legal legitimate opposition force that had uh, 
uh, this kind of a say and voice and uh, expression uh, in parliament and uh, in the country, throughout the country. And the 2015 uh, nationwide elections in which the NLD won the landslide victory was also significant, as was the peaceful transition of power from the USDP administration to the NLD administration. So, so this is basically a kind of a contextual background to how Myanmar has arrived to this crisis because the, uh, the dynamics of uh, the relations between uh, crucial uh, to also uh, understanding the nature of, uh, of, I think, the power relations um, uh, in this uh, scenario. And of course, uh, the, the immediate ostensible cause uh, for the state of emergency uh, currently in Myanmar is um, the, the uh, election issue. Uh, the military's repeated. Okay, can uh, I interrupt you for a for a second? I, sure. I want to go a little bit more in depth on the figure of Aung San Suu Kyi. Do you think that from this coup, how her figure, how her political standing in the world is is coming out? Because I, mm-hmm. I I believe that during the Rohingya crisis, her image in the world has been tarnished a bit. How do you think now she is? Ah uh, yes. I understand. Out. Well, the Rohingya, the uh, okay. Well, the Rohingya crisis, I think, probably exacerbated also uh, these kinds of dynamics of the relations between the uh, NLD as the civilian government and the military, uh, with that multi uh, role and even the guardian role that it has assumed. This proportionate uh, military uh, operations in Northern Rakhine State. And uh, the case uh, then uh, now uh, has been brought to the International Court of Justice. Um, it was the NLD that uh, shouldered the, the task or the responsibility of, let me find the exact quote, it's uh, defending the national interest of the country. And, and Aung San Suu Kyi took on that uh, task, that responsibility to, to represent Myanmar at the uh, International Court of Justice. And so this was viewed widely in the country as the, the civilian government kind of like taking taking on the responsibility, taking the fall, if you will, for uh, acts uh, that had been committed by the military. And uh, the very um, unique uh, kind of power sharing structure in Myanmar also needs to be highlighted here. So when we talk about uh, democratization or the NLD's efforts uh, Uh, to to entrench this very nascent democracy, uh, we also need to remember that under the 2008 constitution, which was uh, the the process that was uh, completely sculpted and and, uh, framed by the military, so the current uh, 2008 constitution provides for that continued political role of the military. The commander-in-chief appoints three cabinet positions. He appoints the defense minister, he appoints the foreign, uh, the, the home minister and the border affairs minister, all of which have to do with national security issues. And uh, there are also 25% of the seats in Myanmar's parliament at every level, whether it is at the federal, at the union level or at the state or regional levels, 25% of seats in the legislature are occupied by military members of, uh, of parliament. They are not elected, they are appointed. So you already have this kind of uh, maybe uneven uh, structure where um, it, it is, uh, you know, call it a, a hybrid, call it a flawed kind of democracy. And, and so it is within this structure that the civilian government has tried to navigate uh, the journey of change. 
And, and I think the Rohingya uh, crisis probably uh, created a different kind of uh, image or a view or perspective of Aung San Suu Kyi as someone uh, who is uh, perhaps unable to, to deal with it. But within the country, uh, she had these very strong interest groups as well as uh, the military that viewed its national security role so seriously that navigating all of this, I think, perhaps also added to those existing tensions of uh, the, the military, civil military relations and dynamics. So uh, I think this is uh, the, the kind of contextual uh, understanding that we need to have when we talk about what brought the country to this point. It seems that uh, this crisis came out of the blue. Like, I don't know, maybe it's because uh, here in the West, we don't have a precise and exact knowledge of uh, Myanmar, but for an external observer, these, uh, these crises seem coming out of the blue, out of nowhere. Were there like a kind of uh, signals of the crisis coming or not? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, we, the you know, Myanmar watchers, analysts, I think we were all on alert about the cool murmurings after uh, the military's uh, press conference where the military spokesperson uh, made a statement that uh, they would neither confirm or deny the possibility of a coup. And that happened in uh, the late part of January. So even though a coup would have been in no one's interest beyond narrow power aspirations, the threat was there and, and we were aware. Um, and I think um, the, the international community also, um, the analysts, commentators, I believe um, they were also aware of civil military attentions as we are. But, you know, uh, there, there was a general thinking that the current situation in terms of the global climate, you know, the global geopolitical, the global political climate, uh, the ongoing pandemic response in um, in different countries around the world and the economic recovery needs. All of these are also uh, quite uh, relevant and important for Myanmar. So I think that, you know, there was this general thinking, uh, applying logic that, you know, uh, because of these conditions to, to address, perhaps, you know, these could have been some kind of uh, limiting factors for, for such a move to be made by the military at this time. But uh, as you and I and, and the world have seen, that kind of um, application of logic uh, sadly doesn't seem to have uh, taken place. And the state of emergency uh, has been imposed and the military mm. now holds executive power. Okay, um, I want to ask you um, a final question about what will be now the relationship with the, with the two real giants in the region, China and the US. So how both countries will react? Obviously, as per China, we have the same leader now. We have Xi Jinping. From the other side, there has been a change in leadership. Now we have Joe Biden. So what's your take on the on the coup and how the new junta will deal with both the, both the two superpowers in the region? I think after this uh, announcement of the imposition of the state of emergency and, and the, the military assuming executive powers, uh, there have been uh, words of condemnation that came from countries in the West as well as uh, from uh, the United Nations. Uh, of course, the US was uh, among those that uh, made a statement uh, and also indicating that uh, the, the, the detained leaders should be released, you know, um, 
uh, perhaps there would be an uh, international concerted response and so on. But I, I think countries are also like monitoring to what extent if they are going to uh, consider somehow reimposing sanctions, to what extent uh, would those uh, measures have uh, more of an adverse effect on the people in the country rather than the group of persons that they want to target. So you have this kind of response, I guess, coming out uh, from uh, from the US and uh, generally from uh, countries in, in the West and countries uh, that, that are concerned about the state of democracy and the democratic transition in Myanmar. But um, I, I think in China, of course, perception there uh, might be slightly different and uh, they might be looking uh, more at, okay, is this a kind of like continuity? What would be the uh, kind of, I think, pronouncements that the new uh, military junta might make? And, and, and of course, now who would constitute the cabinet? Perhaps the cabinet appointment might be something that leaders in Beijing would be looking at in terms of who do they now interact with uh, in terms okay. of... Uh, uh, the, the, the bilateral relations. Okay. It sounds a more pragmatic approach of Beijing instead of the, of the condemnation coming from the US. But I want to ask you a deep personal question. How much you feel worried for your country? How much you, you feel that your country is now entering into this uh, spiral of uh, instability? And how much it can hurt your country in this uh, period of uh, pandemic, which has uh, hit hard both Southeast Asia and here in the West? How do you think your country will come out of this, if it will come out? You know, Mirko, it is a setback. It is a setback of the nascent democracy that uh, we were all hoping to see uh, take more root and, uh, you know, have uh, become more institutionalized. And uh, the, the fact that uh, now that uh, it, it has happened at a time where the response to the pandemic, the beginning phases of vaccinations uh, for, for people in the country, as well as the ongoing efforts to continue lowering the number of uh, infections, you know, all these challenges, as well as now, um, uh, the, the very important need uh, for the economy to recover and, and continue uh, along that uh, trajectory of reform. All of these now are up in the air, they're hanging in the balance. The uh, military in its announcement uh, notification uh, issued on uh, the 1st of uh, February uh, listed out some tasks that uh, they would do within this one year time frame of the state of emergency. And uh, apart from dealing with the uh, stated objective that they wanted uh, uh, to address primarily, which was the, um, uh, the electoral issues, there were two points that they would also uh, continue with the COVID-19, uh, pre-sure the business recovery uh, from the pandemic. One of the other points, one of the last points was uh, the, that uh, uh, elections would be convened after which um, the power would be transferred to, uh, quote unquote, um, the, the winning party um, in accordance with the uh, norms and standards of democracy. So at this point in time, uh, there is this uh, list of tasks that they have said they will do and, um, and the timeline given uh, of one year and the promise of elections. Uh, looking back in history, there were similar promises of elections and uh, there was also uh, a prolonging of uh, the um, of the military in that executive role uh, beyond those. So um, at this point in time, you know, 
um, I, I'm just uh, watching and, and and observing and trying to to find um, where where will be some of the uh, options uh, uh, to look at. I hope that everything will be fine, seriously. And for now, uh, Mo, thank you very much for being my guest for the second time in Deep in the Sea podcast. And I, I seriously hope that in uh, one year, uh, democracy can start again to shine in your country. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Loto. You too.